Well, hello, church. If you would open to John 18. John chapter 18. We're going to actually study the same passage we studied last week, but we'll come at it from a very different angle. So John 18, we'll start in verse 33. This is the Word of God. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. And for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to To my voice, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And so, Father, your truth is before us. What we just read is the answer to Pilate's question. And so, Father, if there are those here today who have questions about truth and about Your Son, answer them, Lord. Pray, Holy Spirit, that You give eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we pray for Your people, Lord, that we would be powerfully impacted regarding our confession of Your Lordship. And we pray, Father, that we would leave changed and more aware of the weight of our words, especially when we say Your name. And so, Lord, we ask You to do these things, and we ask You to do it for Your name's sake and for the good of this church. We pray it. Amen. Well, let me just say, um, as I have lingered in this text an extra week, uh, I, I underestimated how impactful these trials that Christ is going through, uh, how impactful they would be on myself And um, I'll remind you, Jesus is enduring in this narrative and his passion in that Friday morning, uh, early into the morning, into the mid-morning. He's enduring six trials. And we talked about those first three or those Jewish trials before Annas and Caiaphas and before the Sanhedrin. And these were illegal trials at night that they held. And they condemned him to death. They condemned him guilty But then they knew they didn't want to kill him, so they needed to bring him before Rome and give him a Roman trial and a Roman hearing, and they wanted Rome to crucify Christ. And so they put him before Pilate, and then Pilate declares him innocent, puts him before Herod. Herod declares him innocent, puts him back before Pilate. Pilate declares him innocent, washes his hands of it, and they still kill him. And it's very sobering, the injustice happening here. And we looked at last week how 
uh, even in the questions that Pilate is giving to Jesus, there's so much sarcasm. All right, and so we, we saw the, the mockery and the sarcasm in this initial interrogation from Pilate to Jesus. But what's interesting, and I mentioned this last week, is that what started with mockery leads to fear. And, and Pilate, in the third trial, is fearing Jesus and has completely changed his posture toward him. Now, as we come into this trial again, I want to I ask a question about verse 36 and 37 and really just ask, what's the connection? Uh, when Jesus says, my kingdom, in verse 36, and then he talks about truth in verse 37, how do we understand what he's getting at there? And there's a few ways you could go about this. One is just topically study what does the Bible say about the kingdom? And what does the Bible say about truth? And you could just go all over scripture and you could try to fill out those two words. I have hundreds of pages of notes on those. I've preached on those things many times. I could just do topical sermons on kingdom and on truth. And we could think that maybe we were going where Jesus is going here. I think we would lose the meaning. Um, I, I think what we need to do is take this second option and apply proper, what they call biblical hermeneutics, or a right interpretation of Scripture, which means you need to get to the immediate context. Context matters. And so how is verse 36 connected to verse 37? And if they're connected, how? So let's look at this. Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of or from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king. And Jesus said, you say that I am a king. And for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So I'm seeing a connection between kingdom and truth. You see it? Both those verses, they flow right into from the kingdom into uh, the truth. So that I think Jesus is saying, everyone who is in my kingdom is of the truth. Everyone who is in my kingdom is of the truth, which is not the same as saying everybody who's in the kingdom is about truth in some general way. And, it, and, it, and that's not saying everyone is of the truth in the sense that we, uh, the people in the kingdom, just like to listen to truth. Or they'll even affirm truth. That's not what it says. It says they are of the truth. They, that, that's what you're made of if you're in the kingdom. That's the essence of the kingdom is people who are of truth. This is who we are as God's kingdom people. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of truth. So, see that connection. My kingdom. Yes, I'm a king, Pilate. And I have been sent to bear witness to the truth. Now, Pilate hearing this, okay. Behind it, we hear all the, the mockery, the sarcasm from last week. And he goes, your kingdom. Okay, great. That's, you know, that's cute. But clearly no threat to my kingdom, right? You got a heavenly kingdom? Nice. Good for you, uh, man who's standing before me. I'm about to pass over to be crucified. 
uh, you're of no threat to, to the Roman kingdom uh, or any of my jurisdiction. Um, he is not threatened by this. What, what Pilate doesn't understand is that the kingdom that is heavenly, that Christ is over, has affected and influenced all the kingdoms of the world more than any other kingdom without force. Key phrase. Like, how did, how did Rome become a superpower? How did Greece become a superpower? How did China or, or, or the U.S. or any great nation historically become a superpower? It's always force. It's always military force. That's how you get to power. You, you get force to get there, and then you have force to stay there. And, and Jesus' kingdom has advanced and influenced all kingdoms without force. He says, my servants aren't fighting. That's not how my kingdom advances. And we see this connection in other places in Scripture. So Ephesians six twelve, for example, says, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm, having fastened the belt of truth. So his kingdom that is not using physical force is using something. Truth. Truth is the warfare in which his kingdom people are engaged in. And and so it says this person that's standing against the cosmic powers of this world uh, has at least the belt of truth. And then it goes on and talks about this other truth-related armor that this person is in. And then it says they are also equipped with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Truth advances his kingdom. Truth advances the kingdom of Christ. We see it also in 2 Corinthians 10, 4. The weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. How? Truth. Truth is how his kingdom advances. We see it also in Matthew 28, 18. We just read it together. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that's Christ. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded. And though I'm with you always, always, even to the end of the age. His kingdom is, is advancing in the world through truth. Truth that Christ spoke. Gospel truth. And it is a, a force that Pilate has no idea who he's standing before. And, and let, me, let me just say this. This is worth mentioning here. His kingdom is not made of people who are searching for truth. It's made of people who found it. Jesus isn't a way. A truth, a lifestyle option, one among many. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Every other option is death. Which is quite offensive, 
bigoted in our day. I understand what I'm saying. That is what Jesus said. And, and guys, we've got to remember that nobody cares if you say you're searching for truth. In fact, they'll congratulate you. But say that you found it, they'll crucify you. No, nobody dies as a seeker. Nobody dies if they're on a journey or they're deconstructing their faith, picking apart their morality or God's morality. Nobody gets in trouble if they say, I'm not ready uh, to really take a position on this moral issue. I'm, t- I'm, I'm still studying it out. Nobody laughs at you if you ride the fence on every controversial issue. But when you get off the fence and you have to pick a side, and you say, I've studied it out, it does seem God has spoken. It's not vague. I know what the truth is, period. They'll hand you your head on a silver platter, right? Which is what they did to John the Baptist. Why did John the Baptist get his head cut off? He spoke about a political leader's sexual immorality. He was, he, John the Baptist came saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. But then he was actually willing to name the sin that was to be repented of. It's one thing to just say, hey, repent everybody. It's another thing to say of that sin. Now, Jesus is standing before Pilate and he's making a confession. And... Um, if you don't get the connection I'm about to make here, you, you may get lost the rest of the sermon. So, uh, you know, this is where you clue in. Um, there's a connection that, that I need to make for us in order to move forward. So, 1 Timothy 6, you can turn there actually. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 and 13 is crucial to understand what Jesus is doing before Pilate. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 Paul says this to Timothy. The Apostle Paul says this to Timothy. You made the good confession. So I'm saying Jesus is confessing before Pilate. And now he's using this word confession. You made, Timothy, the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, and I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Do you hear the connection? So, Jesus before Pontius Pilate makes a good confession, Paul says to Timothy. And then he says to Timothy, and you, Timothy, made that same confession in the presence of many witnesses. And and so what what, uh, Paul is saying to Timothy is, in the same way Jesus stood before Pilate and made a confession, you, Timothy, have made a confession and must continue to make that confession. Now clearly he's not talking about a confession of sin like we just did. But he's talking about confessing something. And what confession did Jesus make before Pilate? And I think it's this, and then I'll defend it. I think Jesus is confessing before Pilate his lordship. His lordship. A couple of reasons. 
I think it's quite clear Jesus is confessing before Pilate that he's the Messianic Savior, the Davidic King of the Jews. But also, look at verse 37. He says something else here. For this purpose I was born. I'm back in chapter 18. For this purpose I was born and have come into the world. So Jesus says, I was born. What is that? Humanity. And I came into the world. What is that? Claim to deity. Especially when followed with, I came into this world to testify to the truth. Anyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is a kingly ruler who only speaks truth. And when he speaks truth, it generates and supernaturally regenerates the subjects of his kingdom so that they become people of the truth. And they begin to confess him as Lord. Jesus said in John 10, For the sheep hear his voice, he calls his own by name, he leads them out, the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. So they reject Muhammad, Joseph Smith, the Pope. They don't listen to the voice of strangers. They know the voice of truth. A truth that John 8.32, Jesus says, sets them free. Free from what? Free from the search for truth. John MacArthur said it like this. There isn't a person on the planet and never has been who knows the truth, who rejects Christ. If you reject Christ, you do not know the truth. He is the truth. 1 John 4 says, Many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses, okay, clue into the word, confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Then it says in verse 14, We testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so here's what I'm getting at. It matters what you confess with your mouth about Jesus. It matters. Clearly, from these passages, and I'm going to give a few more, this matters. Now here's, if anybody's been in this church for, you know, a couple of years, you may be kind of scratching your head on what I'm saying right now. It matters, like eternally, what you confess with your mouth about Jesus, because I've, if I have a soapbox issue, it's basically to hit at easy believism and say, you aren't saved just because you said something with your mouth. I mean, if I've said anything from the pulpit many, many times, it's you aren't, you aren't guaranteed to be saved just because you repeated certain words in a Lord's Prayer or something. The, the words don't save you. We, we aren't, many Protestants have done what Catholicism has done and come up with religious words that if you say them and really, really, really mean those words, you're in. And I've spent most of my ministry saying, no, that's not true. But now, hear what I'm saying. Your words really do matter. Your confession of Christ matters massively. 
Here's another passage where Jesus said this. Matthew 10.32 If you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. Is Jesus meaning at the end of the sermon if I give an altar call and you confess Jesus by raising your hand or walking the aisle that the Father's going to confess you one day if you come in here and you confess? Is that what He means? What, what's the context for this statement Jesus is making? Well, let me read the context. Right before that, Matthew ten sixteen, Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. When they deliver you over, brother will deliver brother over to death, and father is child, and children will raise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Then he says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. So he's saying, if you confess me, you might suffer. You could possibly die for that confession, but if you keep that confession to the end, I'll confess you before the Father. Then, that's what Jesus said. Preachers for hundreds of years interpreted it rightly, and then, 60, 70 years ago, preachers started turning this pragmatic into at the altar, or after this prayer, if you confess, you're in. And then they would usually follow it with Romans 10.9, which says this, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. So you go, well, it does kind of sound like, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, going to be saved. Uh, there's two problems with this. Uh, the first is Romans 10.9 does not just say, only say, merely say, if you confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. What does it say? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And that believe in your heart doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean if you confess with your mouth and really, 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 really mean it, you're saved. It means believe in your heart. And then here's the second thing about Romans 10.9. There's, a, there's a context. Is Paul saying this to Roman Christians sitting in air conditioning in a nice room like this in a church context? At an altar call? I mean, is, is this the, no, he's talking to Roman Christians. Persecuted Roman Christians. A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar and historian, said Paul was writing to Roman Christians and in Rome, Jews would only confess Yahweh as Lord. They wouldn't dare say Jesus is Lord. Gentiles, like all Roman citizens, would only confess Caesar as Lord. But Christians confess Jesus as Lord, which often led to persecution and was a good evidence of their faith. And Robertson goes on to tell a story about the early martyr Polycarp, who, standing before Roman authorities, was forced to say, Caesar is Lord. And they force him, say it, and you won't die just say Caesar is Lord. And he goes, Jesus is Lord. And they're like, say Caesar is Lord. 
Jesus is Lord. Say Caesar is Lord. He says Jesus is Lord and they kill him. Paul's writing to those who confess Jesus as Lord and they put a target on their chest for some sort of suffering or persecution. And so Jesus' confession before Pilate is a confession of his lordship. And here's the connection. And that confession got him killed. And then let's look at all the others who confessed Jesus as Lord and died for it. And that's the connection that Paul's making to Timothy going, hey Timothy, just like Jesus confessed before Pilate that he's Lord and he died, you keep confessing Jesus as Lord even if you die. This is our Christian heritage, guys. Eleven of the apostles, we talked about this a few weeks ago, 11 of the 12 apostles died violent deaths because they would not renounce Jesus' lordship. They would not forsake the gospel. We saw the martyr Stephen. Saw Peter and Paul and Barnabas beaten and imprisoned for their confession. The early church, even in the time the New Testament was being written, many were dying under Emperor Nero in Rome. AD 67. I mean, many of the names, if you read through, it's really interesting. Go, to, go get the Fox's Book of Martyrs and then read the New Testament and look at the, the names of the people that are dying in these early persecutions. And Paul names a bunch of those same people. They died under Nero in these persecutions. In AD 81, Emperor Dimension began a violent persecution against the church and he actually boiled the Apostle John, our author, boiled him in oil. And it didn't kill him. And so they got weirded out by that. Sent him to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. And Timothy. Many people don't know what happened to Timothy. The one that Paul ministered with. Uh, He pastored in Ephesus. And in AD 97, Timothy's pastoring a little local church there in Ephesus. And there's a pagan feast outside in the streets. There's all this idolatry happening and he starts preaching against that idolatry and they begin to beat him to the point where they put him in bed and two days later he died of those wounds from that beating. It's Timothy. He kept his confession to the end. And we could talk about the third persecution against the early church in AD 108 in the Roman Empire or Emperor uh, Trojan. We could talk about the fourth persecution in the early church, AD 162, by Marcus Aurelius. And that's why Tertullian in the second century, he was a Latin church father, he said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's how it spread. It's how it endured. And as the Roman Empire became more hostile to Christians, the connection between confessing Jesus as Lord and suffering just got blurred, where you couldn't really tell the difference. And so Eusebius, a Greek historian, describes the survivors of a persecution in AD 177 in modern-day France, and he says this, they were so zealous in their imitation of Christ 
that though they had attained honor and borne witness, and not once or twice, but many times they had been brought back to prison and from wild beasts, covered in burns and scars and wounds, yet they did not proclaim themselves martyrs. Nor did they suffer to address them by that name. If any one of us, in a letter or conversation, spoke to them as martyrs, they rebuked us. And they reminded us that there were martyrs that had already departed and said, they are already martyrs whom Christ has deemed worthy to take up their confession, having sealed their testimony by their departure. But we are lowly and humble confessors. You hear the use of the word confess. Confessors. Not about posting on social media, right? Or, or in a dark youth group and you raise your hand he, to, to, to your death. Even if death comes. You hold your confession that Jesus is Lord. Now here's something else interesting, kind of a side note here, uh, but it's not accidental. I mean, this is historical. Jesus stood before the Jews, three Jewish trials, then three Roman trials. Interesting here that these early Christians were first persecuted by the Jews and then by the Romans. Interesting also, if if you were reading in Acts this week, you would have read this. I was telling my kids this. Isn't it interesting that Paul, as he's advancing the gospel, is first persecuted by the Jews, and then he's persecuted by the Romans? And here's something even more interesting. So you've got a religious persecution and a government persecution. And in the Protestant Reformation, what... What type of persecution are the Protestant reformers receiving? A church state, a church state persecution where it's religious and civil or political, governmental at the same time. And they're enduring this persecution. This even is true up until the pre-Reformation reformers uh, who were opposing Roman Catholicism. So some of you have heard of Jean. Huss, not John, but John Huss, 1372 to 1415, uh, he, was, he began to um, promote John Wycliffe's books uh, that were forbidden and began to be persecuted for that and had to stand before the Council of Constance and recant, and he was imprisoned because he would not recant. Martin Luther, about 100 years after that, in 1521, as you know, was opposing the Catholic errors and received a letter from Emperor Charles V, who asked him to come and stand before the council at the Diet of Worms. And he gave his confession before them. And I want to pause on this person, someone named John Rogers. I don't know how many of you have heard of John Rogers. Um, If you've read, again, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, he's listed there. I read about John Rogers when I was a new Christian. And growing up in the South and being, uh, you know, kind of Americanized Christianity, you t- it's like the categories of what a bold Christian is. Like I, I heard youth ministers and different people say like, wow, you're so bold if you raise your hand and, you know, nobody's looking, but if you raise your hand, oh, I see how bold you are. And, you know, like a girl in the dark and she looks at both right and her left and nobody's looking, so she raises her hand to receive Christ and they go, look how bold. You know, that was like my category of Christian boldness. And then I read, as a new believer, Fox's Book of Martyrs and come across someone like John Rogers, um, who was eventually burned at the stake 
for his confession of Christ under Queen Mary in 1555 because he wouldn't renounce the true gospel. An interesting fun fact here about John Rogers. John Rogers is my great, 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 great ancestor, grandfather. Sixteen generations back, I actually have the ancestral records to prove that John Rogers is in my family line. It says he was in Europe and he died as a martyr in Europe. And he held his confession. And, and so I went back and I had, I had to obviously look that up. And I found this out about John Rogers as I looked more at him. He was educated at Cambridge, disillusioned by the Catholic Church. He met William Tyndale, began to learn the scriptures and the gospel. And when Tyndale was arrested, uh, he left his Old Testament manuscripts with John Rogers, who eventually compiled them into the first completed English Bible. After this, he returned to London in 1548 with his wife and eight children. He pastored under the reign of King Edwards VI. When that king died, Queen Mary, we call her Bloody Mary, took the throne and began her violent persecution against the Protestants. Rogers, upon hearing this, stood up like this in a pulpit, knowing she was coming to London where he was pastoring, And he began to preach Christ's lordship, Christ's gospel, knowing that the consequences would come. And that sermon that she came to London was his last sermon. Six weeks later, he was placed under house arrest with his wife and now at that time, 11 children. Six months, or that was a, a, a week later that happened. And then six months later, he was put into prison where he lived for the next year. And they would not allow him to talk to his wife or kids He's sitting there a year in that cell, and the queen finally uh, calls for his execution. They still do not permit him to speak to his wife or his uh, 11 children and one who had been born while he was in prison, who he didn't even get to meet. And they bring him out into the streets of London, and he walks down these streets lined with thousands of people, the reports say, that are cheering. And he's in the shadow of the church he pastored as he's walking down the street and somehow catches his wife off to the side, holding the child he hasn't met. And he sees all 11 of his other children standing by her. And and you just picture, everybody else is, is cheering. And she's weeping, and all of the kids are weeping. And he's able to make eye contact with them, and I'm sure say something affectionate to them. And this is what... J.C. Ryle says, or one, one author said this, their anxious faces were all fixed on him, that's his family. Their voices of pain reached his ears. It's difficult to even imagine anything more tender and affectionate than his parting, this parting scene, a beloved wife and all their children in tears. But still he walked on with the unshakable confidence of a Christian marching to his death. And the sheriff gave him one opportunity to revoke his confession of faith to which he said that which I have preached I will seal with my blood and within moments they tie him to the stake they burn him he raises his hands to the Lord with a smile on his face as people cheer 
And J.C. Ryle comments on this and says, For up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would have behaved in the face of death. They could hardly believe that someone would keep their confession of Christ with their body burning. And one of the prisoners that was in the, the cell with Rogers later wrote to other prisoners who were imprisoned for their faith. He said, I thank God, our Heavenly Father, that I met the dear brother Rogers and I have since his stout confession of Christ and truth, even to the death, since that time I've no longer felt any heaviness of heart. So all these prisoners were emboldened because Rogers went first and kept his confession of Christ to the end. And one young man, John Leaf, was a, a disciple of Rogers, a young man, 19 years old. He was also forced to recant, and he kept his confession just like Rogers and was burned at the stake, and the reports say, worshiping the Lord. And it powerfully impacted and moved this Reformation on as people saw these people not giving up their confession. And I could name 285 other Protestant Reformers under the reign of Queen Mary who died confessing Christ. Now, let me say what I'm not saying here. I don't bring all that up like a liberal scholar. Here's what a liberal scholar would say. Jesus is the first great martyr of the church. And he led the way to all the other great martyrs. Jesus before Pilate is the first. And then we have all the others. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that Jesus standing before Pilate and making this confession did something. It accomplished something. It changed the world because it inaugurated a kingdom and it conquered enemies in his death. It wasn't just an example of what martyrs would do. His confession wasn't just merely, I'm not going to bow to other lords and kings. His confession is, I am the king of kings, and I am the lord of lords, to which all other lords and kings and kingdoms will bow. And it is nothing like all the other all the others after him. And it feels really appropriate to end just with Philippians chapter 2. If you turn there, um, Philippians chapter 2. It's actually an old creed that the uh, early Christians would recite. Verse 6 of Philippians 2. It says, Though he was in the form of God, this is talking about Christ, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, what? Confess. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Confess that Jesus 
Christ is Lord. Uh, brothers and sisters, I want to just take us right to the table, um, reminding us of, of this. Jesus is a Savior who died for sins. He stood before Pilate. He was sentenced to death. He died for our sins. We receive Him as Savior. But we also remember at the table, He's Lord. He conquered our enemies. Sin, Satan, death, the grave, hell. And if you're new, you don't know how we come to the table, we, we really believe the Scriptures are, are clear that Jesus has invited those to the table who have Jesus not only as a Savior, but also as a Lord. And so Savior... What does that mean? It means that we believe Jesus in His death purchased a people, saved a people, forgave a people. Any who would receive Him as Savior, washed. But Lord means that we come under His rule, under His reign, submit our lives to Him. And we believe that that is first in the Bible signified that Lordship by being baptized and by joining a church, committing to His church. And so if that's you, Please uh, come to the table. If not, we'd ask you to refrain. Take a few moments. Uh, think on these things. Prepare your hearts. Let's come and we'll take this supper together. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we uh, want to respond. Lord, your word has spoken. You are Lord. The Lord that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess, voluntarily or involuntarily, on that final day. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves before you as the crucified and risen King. We praise you. We thank you that we don't have to enter into this kingdom through our good works but through the truth of the Gospel received by faith. Praise You, Lord. Lord, would You help us now as we go from here to joyfully and willingly come under Your Lordship and to live so that others would come under Your, your rule and Your reign. And so, Lord, we ask for grace at the table. Help as we take this. Help as we go from here from your Holy Spirit to live for your glory and your glory alone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.